So we're continuing in our series called Reclaim. And in this series, we've been journeying through the first few chapters of Revelation. And in these few chapters, we first notice the importance, the absolute importance there is in a revelation, in the people of God, each one of us needing a revelation from Jesus Christ, a revelation of Jesus Christ at various stages of our life. And for John, he needed one himself at that point. And in that revelation, God said, I want, to, I want you to share this with the seven churches, meaning with every believer that is out there, that they may hear what the Spirit has to say. And I think that's really important in our lives, in our Christian faith, in our following after Christ. If we miss out on revelations of God in various aspects of our life, if we're only depending on what we've had in the past, then we really begin to lose out and, and to find our, our faith in Christ, our relationship with Christ deteriorating. So to help us to get past a certain stagnant stage of our faith, God gives us a revelation. And what we can see from those revelations that Jesus provides is we see that these, the great qualities of the churches God knows about, Jesus sees. The great qualities of our own relationship with Christ, Jesus sees. And he points those out and I say, I see your deeds. I see all of these great things that you are doing. I see your effort. And he's able to draw that out. But part of that revelation is also to give an insight into some of the oversight that we may not see. Some of the blind spots in our faith that we may not be aware about, aware of. And just as these churches, they're listening to the revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus saying, see what the Spirit has to say to these seven churches. The beginning always sounds good. I see your deeds. I see this great work that you are doing. And you can imagine them They're saying, great. It's so great to be acknowledged, right? That I've been working so hard. I've been doing all these things when everyone else hasn't been doing it. And so I'm expecting God to be so proud of me. And he is. But what's surprising in each one of these messages is to hear, even for the observer, that there is a serious warning that Jesus presents in these revelations that surprise them. They're saying, wait, wait a minute. I thought we we're doing pretty well. Wait a minute. I, th I thought I was standing strong. I thought all I would hear today was good job, right? But why this serious warning? You know, you wouldn't really expect this kind of serious warning based on the good work and just the level of commitment that they were having. But for each church, Jesus points these subtle blind spots that was quickly eating away at their primary motivation of faith, their relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't realize it. They thought they were healthy, but it was eating away at the primary foundational relationship or the health of their relationship, the health of their motivation of why they were doing these things. So we too, when we're listening in on these revelations that Jesus gives to these churches, we have the opportunity to listen in and to really see what can happen to us 
when we ourselves are convinced that what we are doing today may be sufficient. Some of us, we, we look at our own Christian faith and we just feel like God should be proud of me. I'm doing good enough, right? And I'm, I'm going as much as I can go. And if there's anything that is lacking, it's on God's part. God is the one that's not keeping up his, his end of the bargain. God's not the one that's helping me in these kind of things. But what Jesus points out here, he's saying, because we are lacking or because we are limiting our relationship with God in a certain way, and we're stuck in that form. Perhaps this is the reason why our faith is stuck. Perhaps that is the reason why we stopped hearing from God. Perhaps we are our biggest barrier to continually deepening our relationship with Christ. So in essence, this is what the church of Sardis was being reminded of. They're saying, I know you feel like you're doing everything. I know you feel like you're doing well. And even outside people would commend you for what you are striving to do. But Jesus says, but I see you. I'm among you. I know what's really going on in your hearts. And I want to draw this out before it becomes too late. So before we go into the passage together, I want our hearts and our minds to engage as we go off into our breakout groups to begin to think about these kind of things. Um, in our breakout groups, this is a question I would like us to discuss together, to share together in our time together. It's this. Do you feel that your relationship with Christ was stronger in the past than it is now? Do you yourself feel like, yeah, my relationship with Christ, it was stronger in the past than it is now? Or for some of us who may just be beginning our journey with Christ now, you can ask this question. Have you ever noticed a friend of yours who was deeply committed in their relationship with Christ, who was deeply committed, and, and you would always look at that person, wow, what motivates their commitment? But now today, when you see them, they don't have that white, hot, fiery passion anymore. Have you noticed whether it's a close friend or family member's faith to be stronger in the past than it is in the present? All right, so it's either you or someone else that you observed. And with that follow-up, I want you to ask this. What do you think produced that change? What happened? Why was it strong back then? But what changed? What catalyze that change that today you just feel like it wasn't as strong as it was before. If you have your Bibles with you, please open it up with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read from verses 1 through 6. So Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the NIV. I'd love to invite you to read along. It reads this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. 
But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come before you, we want to give you authority, respect. We want to honor you and your words over our life. I pray, Father, that you give us hearts and minds that are able to hear, that are able to listen to what you have to share with us this morning. And I pray, Father, if there is a conviction, if there is a knocking on the doors of our hearts, because we desire to be alive in Christ, we desire to experience that again, will you bring that revival? Will you bring that renewal? Will you bring that fresh wind back into our lives again? So I thank you, Father. We commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at the way that Jesus, remember, once again, every church, Jesus represents himself very differently because each church was going through something else and they needed a different revelation of who Jesus is. In that same way, we're reminded in our lives that Jesus doesn't just come to us with a big general revelation that could be applicable to all. This is why we pursue him. This is why we want to get to know him more intimately in our lives because the way that Jesus presents himself to us, when Jesus gives us a revelation, he gives one that is specific to what we are going through, specific to what we need to see. Here for the church of Sardis, he says this, these are the words of him and here's this very specific, unique revelation to them. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You know, we were reminded earlier when we were uh, told what the lampstands were. The seven lampstands represented the churches. The seven stars that represented the angels of these churches. But then he says seven spirits. What does that mean? Well, most scholars, they say that the seven spirits, it represents the Holy Spirit. Seven being a... a number that uh, means wholeness or completeness. And by saying seven spirits, he's saying this is a message who holds the Holy Spirit and is presenting the Holy Spirit to you. The the reason why Jesus gives this kind of self-introduction to the people of Sardis is right away before he gives his very stern statement that comes right after. He prefaces it with this. He wants them to know, my spirit is among you. I'm there with you. I'm not speaking from an outside point of view and just trying to speak generally to you. I know what's going on in your hearts. I know what's happening in your community. I see beyond 
the outward flurry of spiritual activity that you are doing, and I can see more deeply into areas of your life that you may not be able to see. This is why Jesus says, this is the one who holds the seven spirits. This is the one that is this trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I see it. I know what you need. I know beyond your own preferences, your own desires. I can see it all. And this is what he says to them. He says, because I am the Holy Spirit that is among you, I know your deeds. I see them. But here's the challenge. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Can you imagine hearing that? We think that we're doing really well in our faith. We feel like God must be so proud because everyone else knows that we are the church that people would go to. We are the community that people are looking to. We are the example that people look and try to strive to model their church after. Right? That's the reputation of being alive. And we take pride in that. But then suddenly, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, but here's the truth. As much as people think that you're alive, I'm telling you, you are dead. He says this to explain that. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. He says, the reason for your dead faith is that I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of the Father. So what's going on? Well, let me give a brief introduction to the Church of Sardis, what was happening there. The Church of Sardis was known to be a very, 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 and I'll say one more, very wealthy church, all right? They were extremely wealthy. They had money coming out of everywhere, right? And they were also the largest, in terms of numbers, they were the, they were the largest church out of the seven churches that were there. So when this letter was written, it was believed that the city of Sardis held around 60,000 to 100,000 people. So in that time, that was a mega city, having that many people. And unbelieving people in Sardis would never describe that church as a dead church because what they would see in that church, in that very wealthy church, is they saw that it was bubbling with programs. It saw that... Th People were coming in droves to attend this church. What they saw is that they had impressive programs, impressive social outreach things that they were doing. They saw they had gr the greatest speakers, these itinerant, well-known speakers that would always come to this church. What they saw was active uh, committee meetings that was happening to organize events and organize things that was happening at the church. What they saw was sound doctrine and their worship services being well organized so that many people attended. Yeah, with all that bubbling beehive activity, Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive. That's what people see, but you are dead. I know others around you, he says, I know others around you think that you are alive because you're doing so many things. You're alive because you look like a model church. But he says, 
Let me tell you your true state of your faith. He says, your faith is dead. You see, despite all their wonderful programs and their well-managed systems, why is Jesus declaring this church a dead church? You see, the explanation that Jesus gives is he says, because your deeds are not complete in the sight of my God. You know, sometimes I find the relevance of that statement to what we are prone to be going through in our day-to-day. Like, whether we agree with it or not, we really are, when you look at the rest of the world, we really are a very wealthy nation. In fact, when you look at each and every one of us individually, we really are individually very wealthy compared to the two-thirds of the other world. And in our wealth, sometimes what happens is that because we have access to so many things, we have so many options that are out there, as people who are born in this generation, it's so easy for us to find what we need and to grab it. And if, if there's something that we don't like, it's easy for us to drop that and to look for something else. It's because of all the choices and all the options that are available, sometimes we have a tendency of never needing to fully work through certain challenges or certain difficulties because if we don't like it or something offends us or we don't like something that's happening in in this area, we can always choose another. You know, the same is true when it comes to spirituality in our faith communities. Sometimes we may not like a speaker or the or the community that is there and or an or an incident that happens. And it's so easy because of the plethora of other churches that are there. It's like, oh. Rather than working things through, seeing health to develop, I'll drop this church and I can easily go to another. We do the same thing with schooling. I don't like this professor, so I'm going to drop this and I'm going to go find another that meets my need. I don't like this kind of branding or I don't like what they've done for, you know, whatever things that I'm buying. I'm going to drop that and I'm going to go for another. And it's so easy when we have wealth, when we have options, to not complete certain things that we have been exposed to. So what does Jesus mean when he says to this place, you are not complete? Could it mean that this church, because of their options, with all the wealth that they had, they never really had to finish anything that they started? Could that be what Jesus meant? Now, I remember a long time ago, Uh, When I was serving in a church in Korea, the church was huge. It was 32,000 members. Can you even comprehend that number? It was ridiculous. It was 32,000 members and Compassion. You guys know Compassion International, you know, that organization that sponsors children. Compassion loved our church, right? We had Compassion Sundays. And on Compassion Sundays, when they would come, they would have probably we'll just say a thousand kids that needed to be sponsored and they would have them all sponsored, right? On that one Sunday. So for them, they would say whatever kids are in that emergency situation, they need a sponsor, they they would bring all of them. And on that one Sunday, when they would preach to all six of our services at both campuses that we had, by the end of the day, every Every one of the children that needed to be sponsored would be sponsored. 
you know, because I was an English-speaking pastor there, I had an opportunity because of my language ability, which in Korea, I guess it was awesome, but in Canada, it's no big deal. Everyone speaks English. But I had the opportunity because they always placed me with those special speakers that would speak English as I would host them at lunches and, and, and just taking care of them. And so on this occasion, I had the chance to host the Compassion President. And so as I was hosting this person, we sat down for lunch. I had a question for this person. And the question that I asked him is, this is great that you fulfill. And he goes, yes, you know, this church is such a blessing for us because we're able to reach all of these children that really are desperate for a sponsor. But then I asked him this. And I said, um, do you ever find, because it's like that one day ask, right? And they didn't have a chance to think it through, right? And the message that you give, it's so compelling, right? And even my heart is so stirred that I want to sponsor more, but I know that I don't have the ability at this point. Uh, do you ever find that, you know, these don't last? And that's when he put his head down and he, and he said, yes. He said, the sad reality, though, is that the retention of these people that sponsor is 50% stop sponsoring within the first year. But he said, but at least for those first few months, we're getting to provide kids with the food, nutrition, the environment that they need, right? And even though the retention rate is low, lower than what we would like, we still want to do this. He called this, this, um, this phenomenon that, that he sees, he called it instant compassion. He says, some of the things that sometimes Christians have is that they have this instant compassion. They see it, they instantaneously feel compassion, and without working through what those sacrifices may be, because they can't go to Starbucks as often, even though that amount of $40 a month uh, doesn't seem big at that time, it does do something to their budget. And without sitting down and fully working through the ramifications of the decision that they make, they end up giving up. They end up quitting in the middle of the year. And so I'm thinking the same way. Is it possible that when God calls us in a certain way, just as he was with the church of Sardis, that they have all these great ideas, they have this instant compassion to do something, but as soon as they step in into it, without thinking through the true ramifications of what that means in changes of their life, some of the challenges that they will have to go through and dig their heels in and work through those challenges. Is it possible that this church of Sardis, because they had so many options, they never really had to see anything through to the very end because all of their other needs could easily be met and that became an inconvenience. Could it also mean that maybe their deeds, although great, were not the deeds of God? What does that mean? Well, is it possible that they were losing sight on what they were doing and why they were doing it? Right? Let me give you an example. Sometimes the churches, you know, we lose sight of God. Even though we're saying we're doing everything for God, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the activity of it that we lose sight of who we're doing it for and the motive that drives that. 
An example would be like Christmas. Have you guys ever noticed that Christmas, bubbling activity, we know that it's an important time for the churches to engage in. And then sometimes during Christmas, we get so wrapped up in the, in the programming, in the pageantry, in, in, in the gift giving, and all these other stuff that we really forget what the motive behind Christmas was. What it means that in a dark space of the people of God's history, that Jesus came to dwell with us. And to understand how is that supposed to be an incarnational experience that we replicate beyond gift giving, beyond the pageantry of Christmas, in the darkest spaces of the world that we engage with. Sometimes I feel like we lose ourselves in worship too. Right? Worship can be an awesome experience where we have all of this emotionalism, all these great bands, and we're lifting up our hands, and we're saying all of this stuff, but then we can easily get lost in that moment. And we forget, what's the purpose of what we just did? What's the purpose of doing this and feeling so close with God, so emotional with Him? Where does that lead? And we forget. You know, could it be that we lost sight of the deeds of God? Why God is leading us in certain ways? Could it also mean perhaps that we're missing out on the one great aspect that Jesus commissioned the church to do as his final word to us, as his final instruction. He said what? In the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, go therefore. All of the therefore is there saying, all of this that you read, right? All of this journey that the disciples went with me in. He says, therefore, after all of this and after all that I taught you, after all that you've experienced, he says, therefore, or in other words, a culmination of your faith or the fruitfulness of why you are planted and why you're, you're trying to grow in your relationship with Christ, why you are green and with your leaves and all of this. He says, therefore, bear this fruit. He's saying, in the culmination of all of this, you've been planted, you've been doing all this. Therefore, he says, go make disciples of all nations. Could it be that we've forgotten that great commission? Could it be that the churches of that time, especially for Sardis, they, they began to become a church that's more insular-oriented. It became about fulfilling my needs. It became about fulfilling my loneliness, my hardships. I need a community. Whatever that might be, I need my own, uh, I need to preserve my own spirituality. And that's what church does. But then Jesus says, therefore, once you are engaging, once you are doing all of this, he says, therefore, go make disciples. Could it be that our faith is incomplete because we have forgotten the importance and the ultimate fruit of our relationship with Christ is multiplication, is making disciples. You know, one a scholar, he calls this, the church can easily become a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. You know, especially in Canada where we live, where we like to become a tolerant people. We somehow begin to merge in certain ways with the culture around us, and we become so inoffensive that we don't matter 
to society anymore because we blended with them. In fact, one common, uh, commentator says this, perhaps that's why the church in Sardis wasn't facing persecution like the other churches. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I know your deeds, you are being persecuted and you're doing, no, they weren't experiencing any persecution from the city of Sardis. They had probably silently accommodated themselves to the immorality and the injustices in that society. Is it possible that our faith, the reason why it may be dead, is because we've readjusted our faith to comply with the values of the society in which we live? You know, I think perhaps it's because of all of these reasons, Jesus describes their deeds as incomplete. You are dead, he says, perhaps because they have given over themselves to all of these things that were mentioned above. You have a reputation of being alive. You look like your church is active. It looks like you're active in attending Sunday service, but at the heart of it, your faith, it has no power. It is dead. You know, the warning that Jesus gives to Sardis is he says, therefore, he says, wake up. That's what he says. He goes, yo, snap out of it, right? Snap out of your lethargic spirituality. Get up again, he says. Stop being so mind-oriented towards convenience or towards, you know, everything is good in my life because you are wealthy and you have all these options and you can just pursue your own life as you please. He says, wake up and see the reality of this world. It's beyond just working, making money, and then providing the materialistic things or the social events that we get to go to. He says, life is so much more than that. He says to them, wake up. And sometimes that's a word that we need to hear today too. To wake up from our lethargic spirituality. Jesus says, at any moment I can come. And all churches are vulnerable. And, and saying wake up, what does he mean by saying wake up? Well, the first thing, I think what that means is he's saying be watchful. Be watchful. You know, when we look at the city of Sardis, the city of Sardis was actually built on a high mountain. There was only one way that you could get in into the gates of Sardis through that one path. The other side of, of the other sides of Sardis, because it was built on a large mountain, the other sides were crevices and a cliffy rock face, right? So you can't get up there. Right? And so there was only one way in. And because Sardis understood that and they had the advantage of their placement, whenever people try to attack, whenever armies would come, most armies with one look at the city of Sardis, they say, forget it. We're not going to waste our energy in attacking that place because we're going to lose more men and there's going to be no point. So they decided we'll just skip it and we'll attack somewhere else. So Sardis became less watchful. Sardis decided, hey, we don't need to care. Right, whether armies come, because there's no way anyone can defeat us. And because of that lethargic mindset, they stopped keeping guard. So even when armies would come, they would just, you know, arm their front gates, they would just close their doors, and then they would just do their own thing within the city, right? Because there's no way that these people would come. But twice, 
in the history of the city of Sardis was it burned down. One time happened in 549 BC when Cyprus captured it. Do you know what he did? As much as Sardis thought that it's impossible for anyone to go over that cliff edge, Cyprus told one of his men, climb that cliff edge. And as you climb it, I want you to infiltrate and open the gates. And this one soldier did it. What the people of Sardis thought was impossible. There's no way that that guy's going to climb it. They're going to fall to their death. There's no way this guy did it. He climbed up, got in, infiltrated, opened the gates, and their city was taken. Again, not learning from their mistake, in 218 BC, Antiochus the Great did the same thing. He heard from history, you know, 250 years ago, this happened. And so he sent 15 of his men because he thought, Maybe one man won't make it, so I'll send 15 just in case, you know, some of them die. He sent 15 men up the crevice, and they all got in, were able to open the gate, and they overthrew that city. Why did that happen? It's because the people of Sardis, they were slumbering. They were not watchful. And that's the same thing that can happen in our faith, because sometimes for us, we feel like, I'm doing okay. I don't need to invest more time in my relationship with God, right? I have everything I need because my business is doing well. My friends, I have a good uh, friendship here. I don't feel lonely. Everything is fulfilled. And we feel like we're in the right place, just like Stardust. But Jesus is saying, wake up, be watchful. Because whether you see it or not, and whether you see this as, um, as a weak spot or not, Satan is working. And one of the dangers is that when we slumber in that area and we don't think that our relationship with God is so important, this messenger of Satan can creep up on us. And suddenly, a small incident can become a larger one where we never thought that we would handle something with such a depression with such an unhealthy mental state and we don't know where it comes from and we fall sometimes it's because of finances we have everything all straight but then suddenly the unexpected happens and we lose a large portion of our finances for whether we lost a job whether something came because of a situation that's happening in the world and we spiral this is why Jesus says, wake up. As strong as you think you are, as secure as you think you are, you need to invest in a relationship with me. He says, strengthen that. The second thing is related to that. Then when he says that, he says, so what do we do when we wake up? He says, strengthen what remains. In other words, be on guard. Look at what you have around you and the things that are deteriorating, the things that you're not really watching out for, the things that you already have as routines in your life. He says, look at it, and if it needs strengthening, if it needs reinforcement, do it, right? So we can look at our, our relationship with God in terms of a communal aspect. Maybe for some of us, it's hard for us to go to church, but we know that that's something that we need to do for that communal element as 
Paul reminds us that we can only grow when we are in community together. And so for us, we might say, well, I'm skipping out whenever I'm busy or I'm skipping out whenever I have other things that are happening. He says, strengthen what remains. If you're skipping out, your very next step would be, hey, try to make this more consistent. For some of us on the individual level, we might be saying, I don't read my Bible anymore. I don't engage in the spiritual communities anymore. He says, strengthen what remains. Strengthen your time with God. Go back into the habit of prayer. Go back into the habit of reading your word. Go back into the habit of doing it in community. You know, the third thing that he says is remember what you have received. He says, remember what you have received. You know, many times in the Bible, the word receive is used in conjunction with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus, again, introduced himself as he is the one who holds the seven spirits in his hand. And he says, you were alive. And what made us alive was being filled by the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus, even when he gives the parable, when he gives the illustration saying, knock and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Uh, sorry, he says, seek and you find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. When, when that is given, he's not just talking about any gift. He's not just saying, ask and you'll get a better job. Uh, knock and you'll get married. He's not saying these things. At the very end, he says, it's the Holy Spirit we should be asking for. Because that revives our faith. That gives us a fresh new revelation of where we need to be. He says, this is why we are dead. We need the infilling of God's spirit to enliven us once again. The fourth thing he says is once you start doing that and you're being filled by the Holy Spirit, you're going to sense the spirit leading you in certain ways. And he says, so obey it. He says, obey what the Spirit is calling you to do. Don't just ignore it. Don't just say, I can do it at any time. He says, obey it. And as you obey, look what he says last. When you begin to obey, he says, and repent. Obey and repent. Why does he say it in that order? He doesn't give repent first. He says, obey first. As you obey, you'll notice that God leads you in a certain direction, but there are certain barriers to that direction. And those barriers may be our personal habits that we have, uh, other things that keep us as we're busy with other values. And he says, those are sometimes the things that we need to repent of. We need to lay down, right, in order for us to continually go with God. He says, let your repentance not just be driven by guilt, let your repentance be driven by purpose. The reason why I stop eating junk food is because I know that the purpose of my life is to run and to win that prize. Right? He doesn't say just give up junk food for the sake of giving it up. He says because you know you're called to be a runner and you know that this is your prize. Now the promise that he gives at the very end, he says this. He says for those of you there are some of you, he says, that are in Sardis that have not tarnished their clothes. And for the rest of us who begin to do these five things, he says this, I will give you robes of white to be like those who are left untarnished. What does that mean, clothes of white? Why, why is Jesus giving this as a promise? 
Well, clothes of white, as you guys know, it represents holiness, it represents completeness, it represents something that's other. But same time, have you guys ever tried to wear white clothes? And for some of us who are like Asian, or, you know, like Pastor Jen, who has partly Italian roots as well. Have you guys ever tried to eat spaghetti? Or for those of you who are Asian, eat lamyon, right? With a white shirt on, like a pure white shirt. You know what happens, right? When you're like eating it and you slurp the, the noodles. You're like, oh no, it's going to splatter on my white shirt. And it's so hard to get those things out of your shirt. You feel so self-conscious. Ever been at a meeting where for some of us we have kimchi stain or spaghetti stain on our white shirt? You're always thinking about that. It makes you self-conscious. What Jesus says is I will give you white clothing. In other words, he's saying this, your clothing, there'll be certain things that we journey on in our life that makes us dirty, that tarnishes us. That's why Sardis was going through that. You have tarnished your clothes, right? Because of this kind of mindset that you've had. But he says, for those who haven't, even though you walk through the difficulties of this life, these things that originally would stick to you and tarnish you, he says, it won't stick. It doesn't stay on. You know, there are certain sin areas in our life that we try to avoid, and they stick to us as we journey through life. And we notice that because it sticks to us, we become very self-conscious. We're always struggling with the same thing, and it drags us down. We're, our minds are always on, and we're always trying to figure out, how do I rub this off? How do I get rid of this? And because of this, it hinders our faith because we become so self-conscious about that thing that have begun to tarnish us. Jesus says this, when you begin to follow me and obey me, and you repent of all these other things, things don't stick as well as they did in the past. It just comes off. You will have white clothes. You can now focus on what you need to focus on, rather than feeling dragged down by these sins. He says, when we do this, he promises us, and your names will be written in the book of life. That's not a threat. It's a promise. What he's saying is this. Have you ever walked through life and you feel like, wow, this is good. Like, I love what I'm doing, and I'm pursuing this. And you feel so confident about that, that regardless what challenges come, you know you can push through, and you're going to be okay. Right? It's the same thing that Jesus is mentioning here. He says, when we have this kind of white clothes, when we have this kind of newly formed confidence in God's spirit leading us, and because it's his spirit, he'll get us there. So we know it doesn't depend on me, right, on my abilities and, and the circumstances around. He will get me there. And that's why when we're walking in that direction, we have this confidence that we don't really understand where it comes from. And we know it doesn't come from us. We just know that we're going to get there. He says, that life. That knowing that God is there, that knowing that God's spirit will lead us to where we need to go, that is life-giving presence. He says that your names will be written. He's basically letting us know that you will have that confidence that your name is written in the book of life. You know that you matter to God. You know that every step of the way, God sees you. You know that every time that you go through a, cer a certain circumstance, God's presence is right there with you, and he will see you through. You, because you know with absolute calm, my name is written on the palm of his hand. He does not forsake me. He does not leave me. 
Brothers and sisters, this is what he means. This is the promise that comes. And we learn how to lay down all of these other advantages, options that we have because we are such a rich nation. We are such rich individuals compared to everyone else. And we have all of these shortcuts that we can do. We never need to really fully finish anything that is in front of us, especially in our relationship with God, because we have uh, these other things. He says, no, follow me. And I'll give you white robes. And your names will be written on the book of life. Brothers and sisters, May we hear what Jesus has to say to each one of us today. If you have your communion element ready, I want to invite you to take it at this time. This is why, to give us this white clothes, to give us and to make us experience internally this Our names are written in the book of life. To have that confidence. This is why Jesus, he takes the bread at their last meal together. And he says, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And he says, take, eat, and remember me. That's our vision. That's our desire. This is why we repent and and we say sorry. And we say, Lord, I don't want to be preoccupied by all of these things anymore. I want to accept what you have done for me so that all of these bondages that are in my life can be broken by the name of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we take the bread together, I want to first lead us into a spirit of repentance where we say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for my shortcuts. Forgive me for giving up. Forgive me for not completing things and seeing things through. Help me to lay this down. And as I take this knowing that your power, your name, will help me see things through, let's repent together. So, brothers and sisters, if you have your... Uh, bread with you. Let's partake in the bread together that was broken for us. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of the covenant and said, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. Take, drink, and remember me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus shed his blood for us, not only so that it would purify us, And that it will restore us back into our relationship with God, but also to bless us, to lead us in the blessing first in our reconciled relationship with God. And because of this, a reconciled relationship with ourselves and with others around us. So brothers and sisters, if you have have your juice ready, let's take this together believing as it comes in into our bodies. Let's believe this as God's blessing and forgiveness over us. Let's take it together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this great love that you have for each and every one of us. And I ask, Father, today, as we hear your word, may we walk with your spirit. May we invite your spirit in. And as we do, Father, may we live in obedience and keep repenting of the things 
that keep us from you. Bless us, Father Lord. Lead us in your power. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.